Well, g'day everyone. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. We're back for another episode and actually I'm joined this week by a special guest to help me intro this very special episode. Ian Boswell, all the way from Vermont, USA. Mate, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to... uh Good to finally be on. I've been a longtime listener of Life in the Peloton. I've never been a guest, so happy to actually finally be invited on the show. You've leapfrogged it. You're not just a guest. You're part of the show now. You're introing it. You, you're just essentially you know, a co-host. Yeah, I'm in the in the deep water. I mean, we've had a lot of both experience in, in podcasting from our own podcast to doing stuff with the cycling podcast. So we've, we've kind of been living parallel lives on, on separate continents. Anyone doesn't know who Ian Boswell is. He's 32 years old from Vermont, USA, been 10 years as a pro on the road, riding you know, for a team like Sky, but finished also with Katusha in 2019. But that wasn't it for Boz. He decided to jump off-road and do a bit of gravel as we know it now. And he won the biggest gravel event, the Unbound 200 mile, that's 200 mile, not 200K, so like epic length in 2021. Um, but he's also got his own podcast, Breakfast with Boz, and we cross paths in the peloton, but I don't remember that much, you know, because you were often at one end of the peloton on the hills, I was at the other, and I want to say vice versa, but I can't comment on the flats. Maybe you handled yourself a bit better on the flats crosswinds. Boz, what was our experience in the pro peloton? Uh, I mean, we, we definitely raced together. Um, we were also on very different teams, you know, think especially the time when I was at Sky. We always had, you know, Froomey or Thomas or someone riding at the front. You were lucky to have the Yates brothers as your team leaders. And they're just like, hey, guys, we're just going to sit at the back until the last, you know, until the last climb and then we'll move up then. So we definitely encountered each other, but I'd, I wouldn't say I'm a specialist at the flats at all. I mean, there are a handful of times just being at Sky that you make the split in the crossing just because you're already at the front and it happens behind <laughs> you. You don't really know, but I wasn't I wasn't one riding across gaps and, and, and making you know, people heard in the in the crosswinds at least, maybe more on the on the hills. No, I mean we definitely you know kind of ran in the same circles, but you live, you were in Girona, I was in Nice, so you know we were kind of always like one step removed. But um, we definitely definitely I'm sure had our fair share of encounters out on the road. Well, let's get to the point why we're chatting on this episode. This episode is going to be called "What Is Mountain Biking?" Why the hell are we talking about that? Well, because Ian and I are going across to do Cape Epic, and they call it the Tour de France of mountain biking. It's the untamed African mountain bike race. Eight days, 650k, 15,000 meters of climbing. That is what I'm most scared about. It's open to both professionals and amateur mountain bike racers. It's like a fully supported mountain bike race. Everything's looked after. You get in, they even wash your bikes. There's a big food hall. They've got tents. We've actually got a camper as well. You know, pairs racing. It's something completely different to what we're used to, but we, in a weird way, it's sort of similar because it's teams racing off-road. Boz, what do you really know about Cape Epic? I mean, I think on the periphery, I always knew what it was. I mean, I started off racing mountain bikes, you know, kind of locally in, in Oregon. Um, and then I found the road bike and kind of excelled. And I kind of grew up through this generation in U.S. cycling when everyone wanted to be a road racer. So I went down that path. But I've known a number of people who have who have done it, even a couple of South Africans who have, you know, raced in it. I mean, I guess when you're racing on the road, like that's your, the center of your universe. And like, oh, what is this like joke mountain bike race happening in South Africa? It can't be that hard. Yeah. But the more I've learned about it, the more I realize it, it really is kind of like, you know, a Paris-Nice or something. You know, it's eight days. And although, you know, you only said it's 650K, it doesn't sound like that long. Having dabbled in mountain biking a little bit over the last couple months, you do not ride along at 40k an hour. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, 100k stage is like, you know, a 200k, you know, road race. You know, I think physically, like, you know, probably pretty similar demands to like a week long stage race just because it is so long. You know, it could be hot there. You know, mm. both you and I, 
I mean, we still haven't really stacked up our technical skills, you know, against one another and see kind of where who's going to be leading, you know, the technical sections, who's going to be doing tail whips off the jumps. I mean, it's definitely a, I mean, it's a famous race. I think everyone who knows about it and everyone who I've told that I'm going to the event, they're like, oh, like that's on my bucket list of like one event I would love to do. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, recreational amateur riders, like they want to go do like the Atapta Tour and they want to do Cape Mm. Epic. You know, I think those are kind of the two big international events that most people, you know, any cyclist wants to do in their life. And uh, somehow you and I are fortunate enough to give it a go. Well, the podcast is being brought to you this year by Rafa, our major sponsor. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying about mountain biking, as you just said, then I've had to go out and train. I've sort of had to go out and try and learn a new sport is the attire. One thing I'm doing is mix matching and crossing this sort of lycra and baggies, you know, uh, another word, the lingo, all the lingo I'm starting to get used to as well now. And this is something that I think Rafa do really good is the trail wear. You know, they've got the, the baggy top. They've got even trail pants. It's so good. I remember last winter pulling on pants, going out riding. It sounds ridiculous if you're a road cyclist riding in pants. But when you're on the mountain bike, you get home, you strip these pants off, you get completely covered in mud and you clean underneath. It's so nice. That's something that I'm really loving about Rafa too is that they've got this whole other range for this new sport that I'm going into now. Boz, have you been discovering the new things or I guess reconnecting again with mountain biking? One one thing you said before was you've been out training, getting used to it again. Is it something you're really noticing you've had to get used to? One thing I've noticed is I've just had to change my pedal stroke a lot. From the road, it was all about putting power down. Yeah, okay, efficiently. But when you're on the road, efficiently is sort of, it's a loose term, I think. Once you're on rock, loose rocks going uphill especially I notice I try to just muscle it out road style and next thing you know you're unclipping your back wheels sliding I was like I've got to relearn how to pedal almost yeah I mean 100% I actually learned this a couple of years ago I was out fat biking in the snow and one of my buddies who you know is very much a casual rider you know he I kept riding up all these little you know it's all like groomed out snowmobile trails and he was riding up and I'm like I'm way stronger than him. Why can't I ride up this? Because I was just trying to force it. I'm like, cool, I can just stomp on the pedals and get up mm. to it. It's like, he was just riding smooth. And that's one thing I think I've learned is like, you can't just, in road cycling, you kind of just force things. You know, you can just like, cool, I'm just going to tack up the hill and I'll get up faster. And mountain biking, you're like, all right, I need to go. I need to go smooth. I need to be steady. You need to be efficient. Keep your tires on the ground. Um, but I am curious about about your talking about Rafa clothing. Are you going to wear long fingered gloves? Because I was just out in Texas at a mountain bike camp and I got reamed for wearing short fingered. And it was hot out there. <laughs> and I said, do I need to wear long fingered gloves? And said, yes, you abs. I'm like, but why? It's not like, you know, my fingers weren't slipping on the brakes. It's not like if you crash, you're going to like, you know, I guess you could tear your fingertips off. But is that one of the things you've adopted is long fingered gloves? Yeah, look, I struggle with it too, and I was just like, why? why? You know, my hands are so hot. Like, my gloves instantly were completely drenched from sweat because of my. I'm not used to having long finger gloves on in summer. The trails that I ride near my place, the Cobor Ridge, they're pretty overgrown, and, you know, you've got to bash your way through most of the time because there's not enough people riding on the trails. So I understood then and there why you have long finger gloves on because a couple of days I went without gloves altogether. My hands got ripped up from blackberry bushes and things like that. Most of the time, and I think in Cape Epic, we're not going to have that problem because the trails are very well groomed. But it's one of the things that becomes, I guess, part of the scene. You know, like I said before, with the baggy clothes and let's go to road cycling. Why do we do certain things? It's maybe not for performance. It's the style, isn't it? You know, and it's coming across from road. You sort of notice those little intricate things that you're like... I would never do that on the road. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned like the baggy pants and I was at a mountain bike thing down in Georgia back in January and my 
my one of my colleagues at Wahoo and, and friend, we did this race and he had these like sweet baggy pants. I'm like those. And we just went out for like an evening, like, you know, a 15 K cruise the night before the race, just cause we flew in late. And I was like, that looks so cool. And I'm over there like messing around with leg warmers and, you know, booties. And like, he just like slipped these pants on over his bib shorts. I'm like, mm. we can also go get a burrito afterwards and you look normal. I look like, <laughs> I look like a total cyclist walking into this restaurant. <laughs> well, Cape Epic, like we spoke about, it's a massive event. There's about just over a thousand people going to the event. And one thing I'm going to be taking with me over to South Africa, Boz, will be my Athletic Greens AG1 travel packs. Um, that's the way that I like to start every day. As I've heard, because there's the sheer amount of people there in just this small area, pushing themselves to the max each day, there's big food tents, you know, close contact. The immune system is at a very low and people are naturally going to get sick. It's one thing I'm a little bit worried about. And apart from good personal hygiene, I think you need to make sure your gut health, your overall nutrition balance is being taken care of to fight this. AG1 has this unique combination of antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, dairy-free probiotics, superfood complex and enzyme complex it's an all-in-one pack i'm going to need everything to be topped up for optimal health while i'm over there riding my bike in cape epic from my gut health with probiotics to the recovery and performance support and the all-round health with my vitamins and minerals and superfood enzyme complexes i actually can't think of a better time right now than to have my ag1 when i'm traveling on an eight-day mountain bike race camping around with a thousand plus others i'm going to start each day with my ag1 travel pack already portion size i'll rip it open pour it into my shaker add some water and down the hatch it will go it's that simple if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, the Athletic Greens is giving you a one free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Boz, this is a good opportunity for you to go across to athleticgreens.com slash life in the peloton and get yourself some travel packs, mate. You're going to need it over there. I tell you, it's bloody hard and Athletic Greens is going to keep you topped up, buddy. I mean, actually, I, now that you're you're saying this, I'm actually, I should <laughs> yeah. actually probably get this um, because this is one of the things that I have heard from people. It's like physically it's demanding, which we, you know, we've both done races, but like because, you know, in, in a grand tour, you're not in a food hall with a thousand people. Keeping healthy is like one of the biggest tips I've received from people is like you just need to make sure that you stay healthy. That's a huge part of this event, whether you're trying to win it or whether you're trying to finish it is, you know, a stomach bug, a cold, a little illness, like that can really run you down. So I'm leaving in a couple of days, Mitch. I'm not sure if I have time, but if you can pack me some extra athletic greens, I will. I'll definitely, we can make a little smoothie every morning in our, uh, in our RV, do some little recovery shots. Well, we'll do, we'll do, mate. Well, let's just talk about what we're talking about here because I was thinking, okay, what is mountain biking? Yeah, sure, I've been out riding it, but I think in order to do the biggest, hardest race there is, you need to understand the full sport complete. And I mean, go back to the beginning. Where has mountain biking even come from? And when it came to that, I looked back and I found one of the godfathers of mountain biking, one of the initial guys, Ned Overend. He was the guy who won the first XC World Championships in Durango. He is one of the guys who pioneered the sport in the very beginning. He saw the evolution of the bikes. He saw that first specialized stunt jumper come about, ride it. Boz, do you have much to do with Ned? I know you ride a specialized as well. He's been riding one from the beginning. Did you know much about him starting in mountain biking yourself? BMXing, were you aware of this early scene? I mean, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I knew, you know, I knew of Ned. I knew of, you know, Tomac, you know, all these kind of iconic mountain bike figures. And I actually got to spend some time with, um, oh, Tinker Juarez last year. You know, people who've been racing bikes like since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And like for them to still, I think the, the wild thing is, is they're still riding. And I actually did like a little gravel Fondo thing in 2019 and was like, you know, pushing up this climb. And one person hung with me before I flatted. 
And it wasn't, I was like, who is this guy? And he was like an older gentleman. And turns out it was Ned. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, what the hell? He's like 60 something years old and he's still so fit and so good. And like, you know, of course, like he probably would have, you know, had I not flatted, he would have destroyed me on the downhill. But, you know, it is crazy for those people. You know, we look back to the 90s and yeah, the road bike has changed, but not nearly as much as the mountain bike. You know, it's, they were on rigid bikes. They had, you know, very few gears, small tires. You know, even you think about stuff like tubeless and whatnot, you know, it's mm. advanced so much over the last couple of years. You know, the mountain bike that I'm going to be riding down at Cape Epic, the Epic Evo, it's as different from my first mountain bike as riding a, a road bike to mm. a time trial bike. You know, they're they're just so massively advanced and way more comfortable and like way more confidence boosting in a sense. You know, I, I still see things that I'm trying to ride and I still mentally on like my gravel bike or road bike, I'm like, oh, I can't roll up that. But then if you just try it, these new bikes, like they just go over things and you're like, oh, that was like, I hardly even felt that. Well, that's what we get into with Ned. And the best part is we move on to the next step. And I thought, who could I speak to next? Okay. Ned's given us the whole background of where the sports come from. But then I wanted to speak to the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Nino Schurter. And I know everyone out there has probably heard of his name or knows a bit more than I did about him when I spoke to him. This guy is the best in mountain biking, 10 times world champ. And we go into his results in the podcast. We sat down. It was actually an honor to be able to sit down with someone like that and ask the stupidest questions and learn a little bit more about the racing scene. And then we really wanted to speak to someone who's been in the scene from a young age as well and in the scene right now coming through it. And that was Hayley Batten. She's just coming through the scene now, hitting the top. She's at the peak level. She's been to Cape Epic as well, as Nino had. And I want to speak to her a little bit about the intricate racing stuff, you know, like all the unwritten rules in the peloton. And she was great to speak to. And I know you've crossed paths with her a little bit as well, Ian, haven't you? Yeah, I have. She's been on my podcast a couple of times and we actually sponsor her with uh, with Wahoo where I work. But she's, uh, she's clearly a phenomenal rider. You know, and I feel like, you know, when we kind of look back at the history of mountain biking, it was definitely an American, kind of started as like an North American sport. You know, a lot of Americans, Canadians were dominating. And, you know, then the sport kind of has moved over to Europe. And it's really cool to see, you know, some of the younger athletes like herself, you know, Chris Blevins as well, you know, come, kind of really come to the fore and like be like, hey, you know, we're, we're back on top now. And, you know, she's... She's still young. She's also an incredibly intelligent, um, you know, she's like balancing going to school and racing at the same time. It's, it's really cool to just see these athletes who have like, you know, kind of they're perfecting what mountain biking is. And, you know, hopefully one day both you and I get a chance to ride with her because I would love to just, you know, fall, tr- well, I'm not going to even be able to follow her down a hill, but just like to f- see what someone like you know, her can do on a mountain bike. And then lastly, I was speaking to Lockie Morton, who's come from our world, the road world, and he's been in the mountain bike scene for the last couple of years. So I was like, mate, what are we in for? So he gives us a little insight to what to expect as a roadie doing mountain biking. It's a massive episode, and We've spoken a lot about it. It's a long intro. I know everyone's hanging out for this episode. Guys, Ian and I are traveling over to South Africa in a couple of days. We're going to be over there at the Cape Epic. Let's try and learn a little bit about mountain biking before we go, Boz, and then we'll head over to South Africa. Sounds like a plan, Mitch. Guys, without further ado, sit back, strap yourself in. This is a long one and enjoy. What is mountain biking? Well, when I was thinking about this, I had to go back to the beginning. I had to find out where has this sport really even come from, mountain biking. You know, for me, I just didn't really know it really existed or the the history of it before I actually got into it myself. So I went right back to the beginning and one of the names that stuck out to me was Ned Overend. 
I'm going to talk to him right now. He was the first cross-country world champion in 1990, but there was a lot that happened before that. Ned, welcome to the podcast. Let's get back to the history. Thanks. Good to be here. Let's go right back to the beginning. You can help me educate, uh, help me educate me and also the audience a little bit about, because I think from what I understand, you came in a little bit later. Things were already starting to roll along. Back in the late 70s, I think, and I, I could be really wrong, there was there was a bike sort of movement going on where guys were sort of modifying these these original cruisers into almost this bike that they were named the Clunkers or something. You know, how did this all come about? How did mountain biking, I guess, birth? Well, I, I think that people were riding these clunkers, these paperboy bikes, right? These one-speed bikes with a little bit fatter tires in different areas off-road. I think they were they were doing it some in Crested Butte. There's areas in Colorado that were doing it. But what happened in Marin County, there was a group of guys that uh, some of them were road racers, uh, like Gary Fisher and Tom Ritchie. And they kind of discovered these clunker bikes and they had a group of guys that would get together and ride them. There was this one downhill section called Repack and they started having regular timed events racing down that. And so it, the birth of mountain biking was through this racing. This is kind of where it started. What was really interesting is that there was four guys in that group, Joe Breeze, Gary Fisher, Tom Ritchie, and Otis Guy. And these four guys, they're all tinkerers and builders. And, mm. and those guys started all building their own bikes and, uh, you know, started out modifying like old Schwins. And then pretty soon these guys built their own frames and, and you know, started making space for dera- rear derailers and stuff like that and adding rim brakes and stuff like that. The fact that it was kind of the perfect storm that this group of guys who started riding here and racing down repack. And they called it Repack Downhill. They were using coaster brake bikes to begin with, right? So you would pedal backwards like that was the old style coaster brake, they called it. And by the time they got to the bottom of this hill, you know, they lost like a, a couple thousand feet in elevation. The rear hub got so hot that the bearing grease would burn off and they needed to repack the fairings. So they called it the Repack yeah. Downhill. <laughs> Right. So I guess it really sucks because I was thinking about it then. Cyclocross has been around for a long time. Guys riding through paddocks on, you know, road bikes or, you know, town bikes essentially. But the biggest difference here was they were attempting things that were gnarly, steep downhills. Essentially, it birthed with a bit of downhill racing, isn't it? Yeah. And and the fact that they started on, on those fat Flunker hmm. tires. There were 26-inch tires, but, you know, some of them were, you know, two inches wide already. And they didn't start out having tread. I think that that kind of came later because they were, you know, like paperboy bikes made to be more comfortable for riding around on the pavement. And these guys took them off-road. But just the fact that these guys were tinkerers and inventors, and so many of them, and, and they actually pushed each other, you know. Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher are very competitive with each other. You know, Joe Breeze, he's a little more friendly and stuff like this. But this competition really drove the development of the mountain bike. They were really skilled artists, and uh, they started racing. So the cross-country racing scene started out of this uh, this early thing with these guys. And these guys all had teams. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not all of them, but, but at least uh, Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher both had very competitive early mountain bike teams where they were racing against each other. I actually started racing on the Schwinn team 
1984 was the first time I started getting into the mountain bike racing. And Senior, Mike Senior was specialized. They had already had a team uh, starting around 83. Tom Ritchie had a team and Gary Fisher had a had a pretty well-established team as well. To help me understand, it was these guys were sort of seen a little bit crazy. These guys were just ripping down these, you know, the repack climb, well, the repack um, track or descent or whatever you want to call it, um, on these bikes that were not fit for that. What was the what was the image of everyone, even you, hearing about this? Was it something clearly excited you? But what were people thinking about these guys at that point? Like these guys are just nuts, or this is something. This is going to be awesome. I think what they discovered. And it's the same thing that everybody discovers when they get on a mountain bike is that it's, uh, it kind of makes you feel like a kid, right? Mm. You're riding a bike, you know, off-road in the dirt in an upright, comfortable position, not, not like a road bike, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, you're leaned over, you know, and it's a lot harder on your butt, your shoulders and your hands and everything. So it was, it was a fun, friendly position. And, you know, that's what Mike discovered, Mike Senior discovered, and that he knew that it wasn't just a fad and that mountain bikes were here to stay. Because the feeling you get when you're out riding a cruiser-style mountain bike off-road. So I think that's what these guys discovered. Mm. They were a little nuts. They they were competitive. If you look at the timesheets, I mean, these guys, they were crashing and they were really pushing the limits. And I've written down Repack. It is a sketchy downhill. It's not a single track, but it's it's rough and it's <laughs> it's got a lot of uh, marbling on it. It's got off-camera turns and it's high speed. So these guys were were really skilled, and their times back then are hard to beat now on <laughs> modern mountain bikes. Yeah, it's it's impressive how how fast those guys were going. What was the development then? Like as you said, these guys were frame builders a little bit themselves, or just very um, crafty minded were able to adapt these 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 cruisers into the clunkers. But, you know, Specialized were one of the first to jump on, well, the first commercially produced um, mountain bike in 81. That development, to see actually, you know, bigger bike brands grabbing hold of it, tell me a little bit about that. When, when people said, yeah, this is going to happen, we need to jump on this, we need to get involved in mountain biking and develop, develop this sport. When the first, the sport first started to grow, it was uh, guys like Gary Fisher and Tom Ritchie making small, very small batch custom frame bikes. Otis Guy, Wilderness Trail Bikes with Steve Pott. So he was another early frame builder. So that was the only place you could really get these these bikes. And then Mike Sinyard, who was already had been going to Europe to source Italian parts for U.S. dealers, and then he started making his own tire, and he was doing that in Taiwan. So he had these connections to Taiwan. He saw what was going on in, in the mountain bike world, and he hired a couple guys to help him design a mountain bike frame. And he took it to Taiwan, and he said, you know, let's let's mass produce this. You know, or mass produce, mm-hmm. but let's build it on a bigger bigger scale. Stop. And then the challenge yeah. was finding component manufacturers because they didn't have the component manufacturers to do that. It was like TA cranks and it was uh, Magura motorcycle brake levers. <laughs> so interesting stuff of how he had to cobble all these different parts together. And in the beginning, it was Suntour who had uh, yeah. first developed the mountain bike shifters. So these bikes you were seeing at these very sort of early events, if you want to call them that, they were just almost like these Frankenstein sort of bikes, people trying out different parts, whatever they could find and mold into a bike. As the bike sort of slowly found its shape and form, 
how long was it before people were like cool this is this is something that's going to happen because I even remember watching um, some early stuff, doing some research for this, and you saw like a guy like John Tomac riding down a drop bars, you know. So they were still going back and forth to the road and testing different things. It still went on for a little while before we see this bike we now call a mountain bike. Tomac was an anomaly with those drop bar bikes. He started out on flat bar bikes. It's it's not like he came from the road. He actually picked up road racing after he had been mountain bike racing for several years. Right. And what he what he wanted to do was to race mountain bikes on his more on his road position. Because he never rode road bikes before he got on a well, he was in BMX first, then he went to mountain biking. He was successful in mountain biking and then he discovered the road because he started training on the road to progress his mountain bike racing. Mm-hmm. But then he said, okay, I'm, I'm racing on the road. I'm a, I want to have a similar position on these two things, I'm, two disciplines I'm racing. And he's one of the only guys who can race fast, successfully downhill in drop bar because he's such a phenomenal bike handler. Well, the bike started to mold. Like, was it around this um, specialized stunt jumper that things started to take their shape of what sort of the early versions of what we see today as a mountain bike? Yes. The geometry... Has, has progressed all along and, and been changing all along the time. But at that time, it had a, a, a long wheelbase to make it more stable on the descents, uh, made it kind of difficult for climbing because wheelbase was so long. Of course, they were rigid forks, but the forks were curved at the front and they had some flex built into them. These forks that they started designing for off-road use. Hmm. They put a rear derailleur on it. And you know at the time it was five speeds. And then they quickly discovered that they needed more than even two gears in the front. So they the standard became a triple chain ring in the front. Mm. And uh, because the, the derailleurs were not capable of handling a lot of chain wrap, mm. so they, uh, you know, they were not a lot of spring tension. And controlling your chain was a was a real issue in mountain bike racing and and just off road riding in the early years because. The chain would fly off, or you'd have chain stuck, and you can imagine trying to ship between three chain rings. So actually, you had to ride smooth just to protect your bike. Um, you know, go fast, but smooth was fast. Yeah, it, and you had to you had to ride with some finesse because if you didn't, I mean, not only would you throw your chain, and but you would trash your bike. The bikes were much more fragile then. Mm. The uh, everyone they had tubes in your tires. We were used to race about on a two-inch tire. Literally, we'd have to ride. I would ride like 42 psi in the front and 45 psi in the rear, which is like rock hard, yeah. right? Because you had to fix your own flats in the race. There was no outside support, so you know if you had a mechanical in the race, you had to fix it, fix your flat. And a lot of guys became quite quick, especially Tomac. He would get a lot of flats. And I, I took advantage of him getting a lot of flats because he was a super aggressive downhiller. That, that would uh, catch up with him sometimes when he would puncture on the descents. Well, let's talk about, you've spoken a little bit about it now, when you entered the scene and the racing around then, because as you said at the start, it was, it was a bit more straight downhill and just discovering what you could do on a bike 
going down fast, but I, I feel like it morphed into a bit of a, a cross country, um, a bit of a race. Those were much longer races back back when you were doing it in comparative to what we see now. If you can talk about those early races when you came in, what was it was there a lot of technical downhills and was it more about the fitness? What sort of combination rider was it? What were you when you started? Well it's interesting. I mean, even though it started in repack, it quickly moved away from downhill. Really the whole focus on the early days, years of the sport were in cross countries. These series of races that started up in California, uh, Southern California, Northern California, and uh, things like the Rock Hopper race, and a lot of them were single loop cross countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd generally be like two and a half hours, like the, they call it the Whiskey Town downhill, but it's actually uh, one large loop with, with a lot of climbing. There was a lot of climbing, there, were, there was a lot of fire roads, but they would always try and find some technical single track sections to throw in there. So it's hard to categorize these races mm. as, you know, being like wide open fire road or single track because it, there was a little bit of everything depending on the courses. Like promoters today, promoters would pride themselves in creating difficult courses. And several of the courses were ski area race courses where you would climb up the entire ski area every lap you know and then you'd have a long descent coming down it but those tend to be more fitness focused courses Uh, talk about those bikes back then racing them in the beginning because i've seen a bit of an evolution well a lot of evolution you know you guys were all about riding narrow bars um you know as as a roadie that's that's something we want narrow bars they're they're more aerodynamic you don't need that big sort of leverage or you know ability to sort of balance i guess you'd call it um the forks were different um you know the wheel size was different in the beginning what was the theory around some of those setups these really long stems on the bike was it just following the the theme of road it was similar in that uh gary fisher and tom ritchie were both road racers before they got involved in building mountain bikes so when they thought about a competitive mountain bike it was something that uh had a more aerodynamic posture, right? I mean, it was low in the front and uh, long stem. I think the reasoning behind us cutting our bars down to so narrow was that, you know, I picture myself when I'm climbing, I want to be pulling directly back, kind of in line with my shoulders for like the most efficient climbing position, similar to a road bike would be, right? You're climbing, kind of pulling straight back, as opposed to like having your hands out wide, pulling in from an angle. So I used to cut my bars down like shoulder width. I don't know why it didn't occur to us that that is so unstable on the descent to have narrow bars like that. When you descend on an old bike like that these days, it, it's frightening in comparison to the uh, a little bit wider handlebars. But everything else makes it frightening too. We had steep head angles, and uh, which made the bikes very twitchy. You know, they <laughs> they could turn turn very quickly on on snow slow climbing turns. Uh, they were good for that, but That's about uh, steep head angles, a lot of weight on the front, narrow handlebars, and it, it really made for some uh, some pretty scary descending bikes. You guys were very, very technically good, and it sort of felt like the guys who were stepping into this scene, you had to be. I guess, look, the mountain bikers now, the mountain bike bikes now lend to all abilities. I think that's the beautiful thing about it. You know, I'm even able to ride some pretty hard trails. But just not at the speed of the good guys. People less skillful than me can also do the same thing. Back then, it sounds like if you didn't have a certain level of skill, you really couldn't go out on the trails on those bikes, could you? Yeah, well, you could cruise around on them, but but trying to race 
with some of these guys who are, are, are really technically good was uh, the average person, like a road rider coming over would, and, and it happened quite often, road racers would see how big mountain bike was growing. There were salaries in it and they'd come over and say, I'm going to try, mm. you know, mountain bike and I'm going to, you know, cause I've got all this fitness. I'm going to be a mountain bike racer. And it was eye opening to them to see that it, it took a while before they could figure out the uh, descending skills, if if they ever figured it out. Let's talk about the first world championships ever in 1990 in Durango. How did this all come about and what was the hype around this? Finally, we've got the world championships. Well, not finally, I guess it sort of was in within the, the 10 years or 15 years of the sport really coming about. Did it really feel like that was the natural next step? You really need to have the worlds and what was that atmosphere around the world championships? Mountain biking had in the late 80s, was growing really quickly. It was getting a lot of attention. And starting in 1987, Mammoth, which was the biggest race in the US and a big prize list, called itself the World Championships. 87, 88, and 89, the Mammoth race called themselves the World Championships. At the same time, there was a World Championships in Europe. Jean-Claude mm-hmm. Garreau, who owned Winning Magazine, was putting on, the first one was in uh, Villard de Lens in the Vercors in the uh, French Alps. It was a big event. It was one of the biggest events in Europe. And then uh, the next one was in was in Switzerland, and I think the third one was in in Germany. They, these were big races. They had a lot of prestige to them. I won several of those early world championships. Actually, I won four world championships before the 1990 world. Right. But really, it needed to be unified, right? Because you you only want to have one world championships. And the UCI recognized mountain biking starting in 1990. So it gave it a lot more credibility. And here, you know, you had specific uh, national teams that qualified, you know, national teams of juniors and uh, men's teams, women's teams and everything. So it gave it a lot of credibility and made it easier for the, you know, the media to cover it because it wasn't so confusing with several world champions, but championships, but and there was a lot of pressure on me because I'd already won four of them. And now we have the first real world championships. Well, I thought I was winning re- real world <laughs> So I really wanted to win that first one. And it was it was a huge relief when I actually did manage to get that title. Yeah. And, and that then enabled, then starting in 91, there was a mountain bike world cup. So it helped the sport progress. And that's one reason that in 1996, it was, uh, it was actually in the Olympics. Because mm. being a UCI official sport starting in 1990, they're part of the UCI and the, the USOC, the Olympic Committee. So that enabled them to get into the Olympics fairly soon for a pretty pretty young sport. Very young sport. And, and as you were saying then, it was growing so fast and it was, I guess, attracting all different types of people. You know, like As you already mentioned before, some roadies were coming in some BMXs maybe were doing it. What was the scene really like in the beginning? Um, what types of people were there? Because this is something that I've been really blown away with. It's very different to road. And I mean that in a positive way. It's a very inviting scene, something that I noticed straight off from the bat. And I haven't been going to any high level races, but that's what I love about it. All levels come together. You get on the trails and there's just a really nice medium discussion about how you went out there. What was it like in the beginning? Has it always been like that? Or is it something that's just developed over the years? Because it was considered so hard and it was harder on the, those bikes, especially when you mm. get into technical terrain. My impression of the sport is that, yes, you're competing against the other people out there, 
but you're also, all of you are kind of competing against the course itself, right? So there's this sense of accomplishment because you're riding these bikes off-road, you know, climbing up a ski area and descending down a ski area in the dirt on trails. And it, it seems kind of wild and dangerous. And <laughs> that creates a camaraderie amongst the people that okay, we've all achieved this together, so it's amazing what we're doing and we're having fun and it's yeah. insane, right? So at the same time, you're racing, but there's a sense of accomplishment just for doing what you're doing because it was considered so rad at the time, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, totally. It's It was just, you made it, you know? Like, I can't believe it, you know? Yeah, it's developing, and what can we do? How can we make it better? How can we make these bikes better? What about these races now that we see? You know, they've been around for a long time. Cape Epic, you know, the Australian edition, you know, the Crocodile Trophy where quite a lot of road racers did that, road riders did that. These longer distance races, what do you think about these now? Um, you know, because it seems like it's really come back to what it started out to be. You know, a mixture of sort of fire trail and a bit of single trail, but actually spending a bit more time on the mountain bike. Is that something that you like to see um, or you're a bit more interested in where XC has gone now um, in terms of that really fast, intense stuff? Mountain biking developed, so starts with cross country and those early cross country races, we should talk about it. You know, they were not what cross country is now. Now cross country mandated by the UCI has to be very, you know, within a handful of minutes of an hour and mm. a half. So that makes for a very punchy, fast race, almost like cyclocross, right? Those guys are sprinting off the line. You know, there's a lot of attacks. It's very aggressive because they're only going an hour and a half and they can go fast for an hour and a half. Back in the day, we were doing, wouldn't, wouldn't be unusual to have a two and a half hour cross country, even as many as three hours. And we're climbing up a ski area, the entire distance of a ski area hill, you know, maybe three times. So it would require more pacing. You know, yeah. back, you're doing a, a three-hour race. But then mountain biking, it started to branch off into all these different disciplines. I think Cape Epic and those long stage races kind of grew out of this this growth of 24-hour racing. It seemed like it did anyway. There was actually some early examples of stage racing even even back in the, in the late 80s. We had a, a long race up in Whistler that was like five days and... Bale had a uh, race the Rockies race that was almost a week long and stuff. But the stages weren't as long as they are at the Cape Epic. I think the mix is great. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there's people that it's not my preferred method of racing because I tend to like shorter, faster races. But I think it's great because people love, if you follow the story of the Cape Epic, it's amazing. You know, the emotion in those people and the scenery that they're seeing, you know, and they're all camping in one spot and the camaraderie and the competitiveness of it and the dynamic of the two-person racing style, you know, is really, and Australia has a lot of two-person races, Mm -hmm. right? Team team style races, I've noticed. Yeah. And it's also popular with several of the other races that they do in South Africa. It's less common in the U.S. where you have paired Mm -hmm. racing. Finally, I want you to just give me a little piece of advice because you know roadies coming across the mountain biking. You know it from right in the beginning and you've seen it throughout your whole career, but you've also seen the evolution of mountain bikes and you know where the mountain bikes are at now. Arguably, they're easier to ride. They're better suited for, you know, novices like me. 
I'm going into what is the hardest, one of the hardest, if not the hardest stage race mountain bike race. I know it's hard to give me some kind of advice because you probably wouldn't have enough time. What am I getting myself set up for here? What is some, some advice I can take on board from you? What comes to mind for anybody doing an event that long, riding efficiently. And, and that's what I try and think of whenever, whenever I'm riding and pacing myself for a, a long endurance event. And this is obviously a, each stage is long and the week is long and it's difficult. And there's some very technical sections. So I think being efficient, you not only have to think, okay, I'm going to be, I need to be efficient throughout the entire seven days. I need to be efficient throughout each individual stage as well to kind of make it to the the end of the stage. So what's part of being efficient is, I mean, sure, you want to, you know, pace yourself on the climbs and the fitness aspect you're very familiar with, but being efficient on the descent, that's mm-hmm. about relaxing and saving energy, consciously relaxing, because that, that's your time to recover. If you're not really taking advantage of the recovery on the descents, the climbing sections are, are going to be that much harder. Well, one company I'm really familiar with is Wahoo Fitness. It's a company that I was working with when I was professional. It's something that I've taken over to my afterlife outside of the pro ranks is the Wahoo Element Roam Bike Computer, something I can't live without on my bike because I need to see where I'm going. It's a powerful and accurate GPS cycling computer. It's got many great features, one of them being the Summit Segment feature, Boz. Tell me about this. You're very familiar with Wahoo. What does this feature do? It's something, I don't know. I love it and I also hate it at the same time. It's one of those great things about the Wahoo Roam bike computer. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I'm, I'm similar right there with you, Mitch. You know, it's like, it's a feature essentially that when you get to a climb, it tells you, cool, here's where you're at the climb. Here's what the gradient looks like. Here's what, you know, it's all color coded. Here's what's coming up. And also gives you what's your estimated time to the top. And that's probably where you start to get frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're feeling good and you're like, sweet, it's only like four minutes to the top. But you're on a long <laughs> climb and it's like, hey, it's like, you still got 25 minutes to go and you're slowing down. So it's going to then say, hey, now it's actually going to be 26 minutes 27 minutes and that's where it gets frustrating even though you know that like you know you're getting closer but sometimes your speed drops but i mean it is a super beneficial tool when you're especially riding roads and climbs that you you don't oftentimes ride you know at home i think it's gonna be great when we go to cape epic a lot of roads we don't know we're just going to load up our track and there we're going to be able to see how many climbs we've got to go how long are these on these climbs left i'll be following your wheels suffering away and knowing okay two minutes that's all i gotta do two minutes more at this pace boz don't go any faster One of the other great things I'm loving about it is the Outdoor Systems Workout, where via the Wahoo Systems Workout app, you're able to actually take your workout, load it into your computer, and follow your workout out on the road outside. Boz, have you used this actually? And what do you like about this? I have, yeah. I mean, if anyone follows me on on Strava, they see that I do a lot of system workouts inside. But obviously, as the temperatures, you know, start to warm up here in New England, I start to ride outside. And then I can simply just take the workouts that I like doing indoors on the on the kicker put them on my you know element roam or bolt and then do those same workouts outside on the open road you know so you get all the graphs at the bottom you get to see you know when the rest period is when the interval period is and really kind of a seamless way for me to go from winter training indoors to riding outside on the road well guys well let's get back to this episode and find out a little bit more about mountain biking
Well, guys, I'm trying to learn a bit more about mountain biking, and I thought, why not learn from the absolute best? Like, and I mean the GOAT, the greatest of all time, in my opinion, is Nino Schurter. He is 10 times XC cross-country world champion. He's won it twice in Australia, 2009 in Canberra, 2017 in Cairns. He's eight times World Cup title holder, equal with Julian Absalon, who's also arguably one of the greatest as well. 2016, he got the Olympic gold medal as well. Two times Cape Epic winner. He's been doing mountain bike since he was seven years old, 17 years as a professional in mountain biking, 19 years riding Scott bikes. He hasn't got sick of those bikes in all those years. Nino, are you going to be able to, you know, enlighten me on what this world is like? Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on board. Uh, Awesome to talk with you. Let's start something that I'm a little bit more familiar with, the road. And you came across and dabbled in the road. We actually were teammates for a little bit. On Orica um, Green Edge, yeah, for a little bit, yeah. we never got to race with each other. That's not uncommon in a in a world tour team. Sometimes you don't race with guys. You got to race, you know, if I'm not wrong, Tour of Romandy, Tour of Swiss. At that point, were and still are one of the biggest, if not the biggest, guy in mountain biking. And you came across to the road and sort of were just more or less another guy in the peloton. What was that little feeling like coming in, feeling like what it was like being in the on the on the road in the world tour? I started uh, with mountain biking. For- from the beginning as a kid, I always did mountain bike racing. But for sure, like there was always this, the road and that it's a bit bigger, a bit more attention. And, and I yeah, wanted also to see once if that could be something for myself. And uh, I got this great opportunity to race for for that season or for those two races uh, with Arca Green Edge. Because we were both on Scott Bikes and Arca Green Edge was those days on, on Scott Bikes. So I got this opportunity and it was actually awesome for me to, to experience that once, uh, to see what, what's racing on the road. It's a, it's a different world. Mountain biking is a bit a bit different lifestyle uh, than road. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was awesome to race. Uh, what what about the you know because in mountain biking you know who you are. You obviously you know your competitors. You've built up this reputation, and you've got. I know this in the world tour as well. Once new guys come in, you're sort of like, hey mate, you need to earn your stripes. You know, you don't come and ride in front of me. You don't do this. You know, you you sort of work your way up the rungs. And suddenly you were in this this peloton. What did you feel like in the in the professional peloton? You actually have your own level. You were the best in your own field in mountain biking and you come across the road. Did you feel like an amateur again or was it like, no, no, I feel pretty good here? Yeah, definitely. To earn or I got a bit of uh, some situations where I could feel that I'm not, I'm not, not just welcome and I, I need to earn first my, my place here. Um, but then also, like, I got a lot of respect from a lot of uh, riders and that. Uh, it was actually nice to see also that I was able to do this. And now it changed even more of it. Like, you have more riders that doing a bit of everything when you see Father Pool or Kids Cook. I think now Mountain Mike also got a bit uh, a higher reputation in the road field. Uh, but back then, I was one of the the only ones coming from mountain biking over to the road. What do you think of these guys? You know, you just mentioned them, Pitcock, Vanderpool, these guys who are jumping across during the season and sort of doing what you did the other way. Coming into your world, you guys race week in, week out, and then suddenly these guys come in and mix it up, you know, stir the pot. Because it seems like they've got um, a pretty good ability and they're, they're at the front end as well. So they're not just, you know, shit kickers at the back. They're mixing it up. But you guys have got a certain way the race goes. Do you mind the road guys coming in doing this? Or is it 
does it sort of mess things up a little bit? No, it's it's great that those those two guys. I think it's two really special athletes. I think some of the only ones able to do this jump on discipline to the next. I think it's not something that everybody can do. I think that's two really great great talents in in cycling. Uh, it also brings more attention to to all disciplines. I can remember when when Van der Poel came the first first years. And he tried, and I was so motivated just to yeah. attend because, you know, he wasn't one. Yeah, yeah, totally. So at the beginning, when he made slowly his way uh, to the strong, that then uh, finally was 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 there. I was like, I can remember worlds back home in in Lenzer High, the 2018. I was like, I just want to make sure he's not going to win. Uh, this is our word. You you yeah, can't come here and you know take it off us <laughs> exactly. Both earned their position, and uh, for me, it's, they are both also mountain bikers. Mm. It's great to have them. Well, tell me about racing now, and I want to go right back to the beginning. Um, tell me how it's changed over the years because you've been racing. You know, you've turned professional in 2007, and I get the feeling, and not knowing much about mountain biking, I get the feeling it's really changed a lot. Certainly, the technology has changed. So, I feel like the courses have maybe got a little bit more technical. Um, maybe the racing's got a, a bit shorter to, you know, because Red Bull's been involved a few years ago. They want it to be on TV. And so, that's, you know, as we know, everyone wants something short, fast, exciting. How's the racing developed over those years since you've been in the Peloton? Because you're at this really iconic period. You came after the pioneers of mountain biking, but you've taken the sport to where it is today. You've seen that massive growth of mountain biking. Yeah, Ernie, I'm racing since I'm seven years old. And yeah, I saw quite a development in the sport. Yeah, I look back like, let's see, Worlds 2009 in Canberra. The whole bike changed quite a lot. We always were racing on, on hardtails with narrow handle fours. <laughs> Um, and 26 inch wheels like tires and now the bike looks already quite different yeah. but also the the courses and and the whole race changed dramatically i would say now we are racing on, on short loops and um, between four and a four and a half uh, k long max race is now duration is about one and a half hour back then i had junior races that we're already two and a half hours. <laughs> so it's like, it changed quite a bit and you had to change also as an athlete quite a bit. So you need to be much more powerful. It's not all about endurance. You need to have great peak powers. Um, then also like now coming in uh, since a few years, we have now also short track racing. It's always the first mm-hmm. race on the weekend is the short track races where you decide to start position uh, for the main event that's quite crucial that you have a good start position being just flat out <laughs> and a few hundred meters it's mostly going in on onto single track where it's difficult to to overtake so and that's 20 minutes flat out on a on a, a quite a simple simple course so that requires even more to be really really a, a powerful and a powerful rider to get a, a good result in the 20 minute uh it's almost like a criterion where i am also struggling the most now as as getting in and one of the older riders like being so yeah so yeah, explosive fresh. and fresh you know it's the, what about the guys like you know you being there and this is something i struggled with as i got to the end of my career that things were changing in the world tour the younger riders the racing was changing the style of racing um you know i was one of the guys oh you know it's not as good as when I was racing back in the day, you know, type thing. As it developed and drastically has changed in mountain biking, more so than road cycling, as you spoke about, the races were much longer. Now they're getting much more technical. And, you know, I was watching the Tokyo Olympics. I thought that course was quite crazy. 
but I think a lot of the courses are getting very technical right now because the the bikes are dual suspension, all this. Was there an upcry from the older guys going, hey, what's going on here? We're not racing downhill. We're supposed to be racing, you know, cross country. Or was it more like, yeah, this is great. This is more mountain biking. We can't make everybody happy. I think so. There's always people that are complaining about this track or whatever or about this uh, this new rule. It had to change a few things to, to make the sport more attractive. We have now a product that works really well and that, that we also like all the riders can feel or the teams can feel that it's like a, a nice, nice development. When I started World Cup racing, couldn't watch the races. You actually had all split race. You had to tell what, <laughs> what happened in the World Cup race. And now we have like, we have a great product. Yeah. It even gets bigger now. Um, as a rider, you also had to develop through the through this time. You had to change yourselves quite a bit. But, you know, back then, sometimes races were three hours um, with climbs, with sometimes 15 minutes climbs. And now you, the longest climb on the cross-country track is probably two minutes. Yeah, so right. changed. Having all those technical optic soles or technical downhills, you also need to be much more powerful. Also in upper body, it's not... It's not a completely endurance sport anymore. It's a challenge or mm. for, for athletes to just keep up with the sport and, and try to, to be up there. And young riders, for sure, just seeing this or just started with this, it's, it's probably a different way how they approach the sport now as, as I did. That's the thing with mountain biking that I'm understanding now. You know, I'm not saying road riding is as no skills involved, but you know, hell of a lot less skillful than say mountain biking. And it's that combination. It's the combination of having a big engine, but it's not all about how big your engine is. You've got to have the skill because I found out very, very harshly when I did my first mountain bike race, I, I pinned it up the first climb. It was a road climb. I was like, great, I'm with the front guys. All of a sudden, everyone was coming past me on the single track. And I was like, what? Am I not going hard? What's going on here? I was at threshold, but I just couldn't keep the speed. And I understood at that moment that, you know, the technical skill was a massive part of it. It wasn't just how strong I was. So you've got to adapt what you're saying. And I love hearing this is that a lot of guys, you know, maybe that suited them. They were big engines, maybe back in the old days, but they weren't as skillful. I don't know. I could be wrong saying this, but now you had to adapt and bring your skills up to a level for this, this, this new courses or is that something that happened or were they still very technical courses in the beginning? They changed dramatically. So today you need to have really good skills, technically good skills to be able to, to race at the front. It's not just about to manage to get through. It's like also to be able to ride economic, you know, like not to, to lose too much power. You need to be able to, to rest in those technical situations. Even if you have a big engine and you're, you, you're struggling with, with all those uh, technical bits, you probably will not, not be able to push the night hard up the hill when it's easy. And really, those days, if you don't bring the technical skills, you probably you, you don't have a chance anymore because you just use too much power through all those technical um, parts of the course. Most teams have now all have a technical trainer that train really a lot. It's not that you can decide a race, but you can you, you lose a race in, in like technical parts of the of the of the course. There's no way if you want to do well, there's no way to take a, a P line anymore. So you need to actually develop, and, and I think that's all about mountain biking. You know, and like you need to be a, a really complete rider. You know, it's a bit different in the road. I think there's some chances for right now, like 
One stage is for mm. climber, one stage is for sprinter. Um, but in mountain biking, if you're just a great climber, you don't will make it. And if you're just a great sprinter, you all you will not do it. And you need to be complete. And I think that's all about mountain biking now even more. You need to be, you have your technical skill, you need to have your engine, you need to have your um, peak powers. Um, it's like, you don't need to be the best in climbing, you don't need to be the best in sprinting, but you need to be good everywhere. What about, what, are you ever scared or intimidated by the, you know, like in the race or when you realize, okay, I've got to lift this level. Like this is stuff that I'm intimidated by, these jumps, these doubles, these descent but I've got to overcome that. Or you're past all that now. There's nothing that makes you scared, I guess, you know? This, I actually quite enjoyed this development in sport because I was always one of the more technical riders. So I enjoy actually when it's it's a bit <laughs> difficult. When I was a kid, I also did a bit of downhill racing. My family was quite into downhill racing. So my brother raced downhill and my father was for a while down in national coach. So I always enjoyed this part of, of uh, cross-country racing. So... When I saw a track getting more difficult or I saw it's, it's super technical, I was always happy and I was like, that's going to be a race for me. So. Can you take me inside a race now? Because I've never done a XC race. I've only done sort of um, a stage race mountain bike um, or a, a marathon, so a 100k one. So that suits me a bit more. It's a bit more relaxed at the start. And I was on the first, on the start line of my first marathon, I thought it was going to be like an XC race. Everyone was going to sprint off and I was so nervous. But actually we took off and we were chatting for the first minute or two. Tell me, take me inside the start line, like what what's going on then and and sprint for the for the shoot i guess or the single track is it aggressive out there do you is there is there some kind of respect between you guys is there some kind of unwritten rules like the road where you know when you're in front and you're going slow you let a guy around or you're like no bad luck mate you want to get around me get around on the outside that's for sure a lot of respect uh, in between the top riders um but if you are not in the top 20 it gets quite quite aggressive but in the top 20, I would say there's big respects for each other. But then for the back, it goes, it's more aggressive it gets. It's probably similar uh, like on the road. Cross-country racing is, is flat out from the start. Um, mostly in the first minute, you're on, on your max, what you can bring in a, in a minute. And then after like the first 10 minutes, you you find a bit your position. Hopefully you're happy where you, where you ended up. <laughs> If not, you need to start to move up. Uh, racing on a single track, uh, uh, just sometimes it gets wide where you can pass. Most important thing is to ride economic, you know, to save energy. Even if it's just a bit of drafting for a while, get to the right position and get smoothly through technical bits where you don't use too much energy. Um, yeah, then... Uh, hopefully end up where you will so th so there is actually drafting you know because that's the question i was going to ask you is you know in my opinion it'd be nice to be in the front because i'd be able to see the track you know i can see where i'm going i can see what i've got coming but would you prefer to be following someone you know follow their line they could they could do a bad line maybe you know is that a position that you like to sit behind someone because you get a an aerodynamic advantage or would you prefer you know what if i can get out front i prefer to be out front on my own for sure drafting is not as a big thing as on the road because we are a bit slower on the trails we are mostly uh, between 20 40 k's an hour it's still there is drafts even if you go if you go through through a single track you you, you feel a draft behind someone so but you also don't want to end up in 
pen position because as soon as you get to to a turn or so, you it can block you up and you know and if you're pen position, um, you know, the harmonica effect, yeah, you're going fast, slow, fast, slow, and you're ending up blowing up because you always need to sprint out of the corner and then you need to wait again. So you want to be in a in a good position. So what I like most is riding at second position. You know, you have a little draft. Uh, you you see everything, you are, have everything under control, so then uh, hopefully in the end be able to be the strongest. <laughs> what, what about what about dropper posts? You know, this is something that I rode f- firstly without one, and so I didn't know anything different. And then someone said, hey, how could you even possibly ride with a dropper post and, you know, without one? And then I got one, and I feel like I'm using it even on the flat now. I love it. You know, I've got more control. You guys, you know, some guys are choosing not to use dropper posts just because it's a bit of extra weight. I can't even understand that. You know, some of the stuff you go down. These sort of little technical things, is it really that finicky in the top end that you're going one track, I, I put a dropper post on, one track I don't. You know, like you said, the tire width, the tire pressure. It really is the minute details, isn't it? There's a lot of details, but like with dropper posts, I think now everybody's oh, okay. using it. So there were years where you were some guys or I also myself, I, I was running a long time without dropper post because I wanted to save the, the weight. And that was, I was like, if this being a bit more technical rider, I was able to, to keep up with, with the boys having a dropper post. But now, you know, it's not about just being able to do it. It's also about how you do it. Like this again, how economic you can race. If you can lower your, your seat, it just can ride easier mm. through this section and you save some energy for later but i think a good example is maybe you guys still know in, in uh, tokyo where von mm. cool went over this jungle and crashed he didn't have a dropper post on in the end it can cause us also mm. crashes um for a long time like the weight on the bike was a was a big thing because it's also coming a bit from the road you know like if you climb long it's 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 crucial to be light but mountain biking is like the performance of the bike is the main thing and then for sure the weight is also important but it's not the most yeah. important thing you need to have a bike that works well that's as well like you need to have great suspension you need to have good tires and tell me a little bit about if you can the psychology out there you know is there some mind games going on between the guys you know that you know i don't know maybe there's i've seen it where there's two different styles of track and you know one way is a little bit longer, but it's easier. And one way is more technical and, you know, harder. And just being able to do that time and time again, just sort of letting the other guys know, hey, I just did the hard bit. You just took the easy route. Or oh, I don't know, you know, there's sitting on someone's wheel or even at the start. Just, yeah, give me inside. What's, what are the little sort of psychological games going on out there? Is there, is that, is that sort of stuff happening? For sure. Like I think that's in every sport is like the yeah. end game is as important as the rest. I think. Also for yourself to to have self confidence, and I think that's that's a big part of of dominant uh, sport in the end to be able to to at least to what you what you're capable to actually to perform what you're capable. It starts before the race. Who looks good? Who looks uh, confident? Um, and also sometimes in practice, you know, who takes the yeah. hands when there's practice. There's always guys on the track taking videos and then you see wow this guy has a, a speed line he looks he looks super fast and uh he takes this section so smooth and it starts already there so as long as you're having in control of the game and draft the self-confidence in the end as well to to win i think for you like it's it's clear like if you just want to look at your palmares and remember what i introduced you as you know 10 times world champion there's 
There's so many other races I'm not mentioning, you know, eight times World Cup title holder. Just to be able to have that consistency, to be able to redo the same format, you know, it's not just having little spikes and, you know, massive downfalls. It's being able to be that consistent guy um, and understanding what makes it work for you. I'm making it sound a hell of a lot easier than it is, but that is a formula I can imagine that you've had to work with over the years through different mentors through different, either whether you've reached out to professional psychologists or even just yourself, figuring out what works for you. And I find that so interesting, especially talking, you know, with with champions like yourself, because I have that own individual battle with myself about just trying to do my simple job on the road as a pro, let alone trying to win a world championship um, year after year. Is that something that you pride yourself on? Um, being able to, like you said, have control and and figure out what's going in your head to be able to do that performance year after year. How oh, you mindset? I think it's always the most mm. important thing to be successful. For sure, you need to do your your work, your, your training, and everything. But if your mindset is wrong, you can be in the best shape of your life, and you will not make it. It's like you need to get in this position where you feel comfortable, where you where you have this self confidence. That's probably one of the main reasons why I was was so successful through the past years. I had great people around me helping me to get in, in this in this state, to slowly build me up, to get the self-confidence, to get the right mindset, to be ready when it when it really counts. That requires a good planning, a good a long time planning as well, like to to get everything right. And uh, I think that's a lot of riders they maybe I'm not the, the strongest rider, but I I mostly I can perform what I'm capable. I'm, I'm able to unlock this what I can, and I think a lot of riders they they could do much better. But on day X, they some something is is missing or something is like not hundred percent right, and that's that's uh, I think it's a big key in, in professional professional sport to have the right mindset. It's not only just up for yourself to figure out. You've got to use those people around you. It sounds like you've got a great team around you. I want to ask you lastly about a different style of racing. And this is where I feel like two different styles of two worlds meet. I'm talking about Cape Epic, the Epic series. You've done um, Swiss Epic. You've also done Cape Epic. You've won Cape Epic twice. Um, You've won Swiss Epic once, I saw. But I saw, and I could be wrong, you've never done the Crocodile Trophy. Mate, the biggest one there is. (laughs) Tell me about these races and how they differ from what we were just talking about. All these epics are really, or this um, long-term racing is completely different. But we mountain biker are used to. Yeah, we have one-day events. Uh, now with the World Cup having a short track race, it changed a bit. It also almost feels a bit like a, a short stage race, like a Cape Epic. It's I think it's the hardest of all ever of of all those races. It's like eight days in a row. That's something totally different for us, for us uh, cross country race and also distance is much longer you know some of those stages are up to five hours you need to race as a team you know like all those races you you race as a couple you need to stay together for the entire race and um, that's also with like cross country racing you are like a, a single sport you know you 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 are responsible for yourself and some of a sudden you race as a team and uh, you need to, to work well together. But I really enjoy it. Uh, enjoy it or enjoying those races. It's it's different. It's it, it's a bit closer than to, to road mm-hmm. racing. Good. It's those those uh, Swiss Epic or the Cape Epic where um, those races that one night. I also had uh, uh, quite a benefit from this time. I raced with Orica Green Edge. Wow. Like, 
Really? And it's like, I, or I realized that's like, and in, in those day traces on the road, it's like, even if it's easy, you need to try to save every pedal stroke because we're probably going to need it later um, to be as, again, as economic as possible through the race riding. If there's a, is it a turn to be just as smooth as possible around this turn that maybe saves two, three pedal strokes afterwards. And that gets really crucial in those, mm. in those races. What's the difference then? It's like to the road racing, it's, it's even harder <laughs> than on the road because he's like, you know, if you're, if you're on a gravel road or then a trail, you always never have yeah. this, this time where you can just float in, in the field. Hayley Batten, you've got to tell me a little bit about what it's like to actually race in the peloton, I'm going to call it, because you've grown up racing mountain bikes, you know, from the age of nine, from what I understand, in Park City, where, from what I hear, is there's just endless trails. You've just known mountain biking. The first question I've really got to ask is all those little things you learn over the years, that's things that I've got to be aware of, like, what do I really need to prepare? be prepared for in mountain biking is there sort of like unwritten rules i'm sure there are because in the road in road cycling in the peloton even in bunch rides people are like what well, how come you're doing that how come you're doing this you're like hey of course we don't we don't do that what have i got to be prepared for what are those things it's going to be hard for you to think about it because they're going to come naturally to yeah me. well first thanks so much for having me on i love that you're jumping into our crazy sport we call mountain biking um i think it's gonna be awesome i hope you enjoy it but gosh, I think that's such a funny question too, because I feel like whenever I go on a road group ride or something, that's kind of the element that I'm so not used to. And it's like, oh my gosh, am I doing something <laughs> wrong? You know, I'm always worried about, oh, am I on the wrong wheel or, you know, my crash or something like that. But yeah, gosh, round biking, God, you know what? That's a hard question to answer too, because you're right. I've been doing it for so long and some, some of it like just comes so naturally. And I think some of the, maybe just the key, key parts for you will just, yeah, I think becoming one with your bike, you know, and I think you already do that on the road bike, you know, and I mm. think it's just another element of that on the mountain bike. And I think uh, just the technical aspects, but also, I mean, I think especially with something like, you know, the Cape Epic, I think it's so you'll bring so much of those tactics and your your awareness of when, you know, to make your moves. And I think at a cross country race, it's a bit different because it is almost like we go all out for an hour and a half. And there are very few sports that are an endurance mm -hmm. event but also full-on like there's no it's relentless you know it's almost not an endurance event because it's just so high paced the whole time um but yeah i'd say the keys are just becoming one with your machine you know and and learning the the equipment making right tire choices um you know being aware of what the conditions are to make those choices for your equipment and then also just having a good time i think that's what the vibe is for mountain biking is it's it's all about the stoke and um just being out there in nature and on the on the cool trails and i think uh that's probably what's what's the most fun about it. I'm already hearing the lingo. I've <laughs> got to get some of these words down, Pat. Like, I, it's, a, it's a completely different language. I'm, I'm picking up on a couple of things there. So, I've got, I'm going to have to get a vocabulary sort no, of lesson as well. that's actually funny. Of all the... All yeah, the my, my coach is from the yeah. roadside. And when she first started coaching me as well, she was like, just always would make fun of me. Oh, sick and stoked and gnarly. And she just... Yeah, she's slowly picking up on it too. But <laughs> <laughs> she sends me videos all the time about comparing road 
road lingo to mountain bike and it's different but it's also very much it's similar in many ways as well tell me about the little little things now since we're talking about that little funny stuff what about long finger gloves they're a must yeah on a actually yes if i think if you wear short short fingering gloves people might make fun of you it is like just part of that. It's one of those little things. Everybody has it. What about peaks on helmets? Wait, Don't do that. Oh, yeah, the I, people lost is the peaks what now. Do you call it a peak? Yeah. A peak. <laughs> a peak. Yeah. Yeah. No. No visors either. For okay. For cross country racing, when I'm on my trail bike or enduro bike or wearing baggies, then visor visors allowed. You said before, you know, cross countries. Your first cross country. Um, World Cup appearance, you actually podiumed. That's quite phenomenal. And I, th- I I get the feeling that that had to do with you growing up with mountain biking and sort of being second nature to you. Talk to me about the start, how important that is, because from just from visually watching it in the race, it looks like you guys go out of the blocks and empty the tank, everything you've got right then and there, because if you're not into that single track in a good position, it could be over. Am I wrong or is that no, exactly you're how it goes? spot on and... It's actually crazy. I've I've missed my pedal so many times in races, and it's it's been something I've focused on a lot because I mean, if you think about like a cross country pedal, it's tiny, right? And you've only got two sides on it, and you mm. really can't miss it. It's like the the lights go or the yeah the lights go from red to green, and it's you have to click click in instantly and be full power on the pedals into that single track. And yeah, it's a tricky element, and it's one of those tiny little skills that I spend a lot of time practicing because it is so key to a cross-country race. Clipping yeah. in at the start and just being on that pedal exactly. and just going yeah. straight I mean, away. Stand still, right? So you've got one one foot in like any bike ride yeah. and you basically have to get that pedal in and like, yeah, shoot to the pedal, clicked in as fast as possible and then like stomp on it. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's, I guess I guess it's a no-no to hang on to the side of the fence <laughs> yeah, if you're no. on the side. Yeah, there. no, no track right? standing, no floating onto the wall, no cheating. <laughs> What about when you're out on the track? Like, is it sort of viewed as like, um, you know, you've got no skills if you have to dab your foot down or even run up a sector or even walk down a sector? I'm assuming you never do that in a XC race. But what's the sort of funny sort of in the in the bunch sort of look on when you have to unclip or when you have to actually resort to walking? You're like, oh, just see that girl? She had to walk up that climb. No, no chance. Mean, <laughs> I'd say it's a little bit of both. Like sometimes the conditions are so extreme that you have to just get off and run something as fast as possible. And it is interesting. Sometimes it's actually faster. So I remember there was a race in, in France mm. a couple years ago where the conditions were so bad that I just would hop off and run around like the, the smallest part of the corner over these rock gardens as fast as possible instead of like riding over them because I was just faster. And I think at the end of the day, it is, it's not all all about fitness and skill. It's just speed right it's whoever does the race as fast as possible and i think that's mm. the most important part but for sure like if you're not riding features or you're taking the b line right which is you know the a lines are yeah technical lines yeah. and the b lines the go around or yeah the chicken line maybe it's definitely part of cross country for sure and, like <laughs> trying to have the skills but no that's definitely part of it and yeah if you're if you're hitting the jumps and riding the the technical lines it's it's definitely adds the cool aspect to our sport, I guess. <laughs> what about when it does get wet and slippery and stuff? What's the tactic there? Do you want to sort of, you know, hang back, let them all sort of crash in front of you and you ride through, you know, as everyone's cleared out of the way or just go for it, get in front, let them make them the <laughs> yeah, same. Exactly right. I mean, I think it, it's a bit of both for sure. I mean, for me, like we just had a race in Spain, uh, gosh, two weekends ago. And yeah, that was my tactic. It was it was muddy out there and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go fast from the gun and try and mm. get away from everybody because when people crash in front of you, it, it definitely slows you down. And 
I'd rather make those mistakes on my own and kind of be able to hop back up and continue my lead than than get caught in a crash or or stuck behind somebody. And I spend a lot of the winter and fall in Squamish, BC in Canada. So it gets really muddy there and like there's a lot of rain. And so I find that that's definitely a conditions that I feel comfortable in, I guess. And I spend a lot of time. Mm. So I use that to my advantage often. And sometimes if people are looking at the forecast and, and rain's on the way, they're stressing. And I'm honestly like, pray it rains like that's something i i get really excited about so the the more unpredictable that's something i love about cross country well what 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 makes you even excited about the rain is it the fact that you could you've got better control than others on say slippery surfaces or you like the mud it's actually easier to ride in it's got more grip i don't know i'm trying to think about what i could possibly (laughs) like about going down a rock garden that's wet or over wet routes where I'm out of control, you know? What part of the wet do you actually get excited about? The fact that you're yeah, better than us. probably that part, because you're right. I mean, slippery rock gardens and slippery routes are kind of scary, and you usually crash more often or you get close yeah. to it. Um, but yeah, I think I've just spent more time in those conditions, so I do feel more comfortable in them, and and that when I feel like that's an advantage for me, I get excited when, when the race will be like that, and I think in general, I love cross-country racing because because of the thrill. And I think that's, you know, why I race mountain biking instead of another discipline, because I like the the adrenaline and the thrill and, you know, those technical features. And so when you kind of stack that up with a rock garden and some rain, yeah, I definitely get excited. <laughs> and I feel like it it's, uh, helps my cards, I guess. What about the etiquette out there? Like, are you, when you come past, you know, another competitor, you sort of, you know, whispering in their ear something, you know, if it's someone you know, coming on your ride or you know hang in there see at the end for some cold beers or whatever it may be or even you might be even drilling yeah. them a bit yep see ya you know catch you later or is it more like you're really respectful and you know you you well are you trying to block even you know if people try and get past and you think you can hold them off to the end you're not going to let them pass on a single trail what are those little bits that are over the line in terms of yeah the rules that's a tricky rules, question i think like the first time i ever raced in europe I realized how relentless people were. No matter what position you were in, people were blocking you. People were doing anything to not let you pass. And you have to learn the skill of passing. It's it's nobody's gonna let you go, you go by. Um, I think you know, for me, when I'm in a race with yeah a good friend or a teammate, you know, maybe that's you know Specialized or Team USA. I think there's definitely more respect there. Of okay, well, you know, are you are you going faster? You know, are you fitter today? Like. Maybe I, I won't just like block the trail completely. But I I mean, that that is kind of a gray line. I think the way that I like to race is, is more respectful. I want I don't want to take somebody down or block somebody out completely where they crash or something like that. I think it is for me, it's more a race of I want you to have your best day and I want to have mine and I want to be the better rider. Mm-hmm. And so for me, using, yeah, I think uh, stuff happens. People crash some people out and it's 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 part of the racing yeah. for sure. But I think I try and be a more respectful racer when it comes to that. But I mean I guess it depends on the day and sometimes you make you know, you, you make a mistake or yeah, that's racing. Well it is a small circuit, um, just like the, the World Tour Peloton and if you want to hang <laughs> around in the right. in the circuit or the Peloton for a long time, it's like I might just cut you up today, but it's like, hey, you're going to be here for the next 10 years, I guess. So you've just made an enemy for 10 years. So you still got to think of the long game. 
um, and choose your moments to go, going to have to burn that bridge yeah, today. And, it's going to be Especially worth it. with the addition of short track and at the World's Cups, it is, I mean, it's more tactical and every position counts. And we all know the riders that we don't want to be around. There are like two or three that I can think right now in my head. It's like, oh my gosh, if you see them in the race, you are getting as far away as possible because they are just, it's like people don't exist. They just go where they want to go, you know, where, where space doesn't exist, mm. I guess. We all know who those riders are. So <laughs> you don't want to be one of them. <laughs> well, let's talk about the other discipline and Cape Epic you've had some success in Cape Epic you've actually won Cape Epic it's a really different race from what I'm understanding com- compared to the XC the cross country um, short racing um, and after talking with Ned it's going back to a little bit what cross country started at a long sort of big loop you know an adventure way sort of race tell me the differences and you know the physiology differences but also the mindset differences when you go into the two different yeah, races um, I actually love the marathon style stage racing i think i think you're right like what ned said Mm -hmm. it is it kind of brings you back to what the core of mountain biking is which is an adventure and it's almost i think something that we don't get experience as much as cross country is cross country you're going max for an hour and a half and it's a different type of tired it's a different type of um suffering i guess and there's something about going day after day after day and seeing you know how far your body can go and trying to do that again and again and i i definitely love that style it's you know it's it's not just one hour and a half race on one weekend but it's like three to six hour ride you've got the elements you're facing you've got mm. you know one of the coolest part about cape epic is the team that you're working with you have a teammate and then every single day you know you go back to for us like our support system and trying to build upon each day and not making any mistakes or having a mechanical or something like that so it is an all an adventure and i think more than anything you're right it's i think it's more about your mind than even your physiology for sure it's different like for me after the cape epic i tried to go back to to world's cup racing pretty quickly like not long after brazil we had a world's cup and and we raced the short track so for me going from like stage race in cape epic and then trying to race the short track was just so insane like i barely survived that that short track it was just so different because it's obviously i had different different yeah, you're training different systems. And it took me a while to get back to World's Cup speed. It's also, it definitely builds fitness and it's 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 an incredible experience for sure. Do you think in a way, I was just hearing you talk then, do you think in a way, like I remember doing, as when I became professional on the road, the bigger, the harder race I did, when I went mm-hmm. back a level, I'm not saying World Cups are easier, but you've sort of been hardened so far that you, you've pushed your, ment- your mental sort of stamina so far that you come back and you're ready you could almost handle a different load of pressure and stress because you're like i've been to the bottoms of the the depths of the darkness in cape epic already so coming back to this you know what i've only got 30 minutes left whatever i can do this whereas i can imagine cape epic something goes wrong you're like (laughs) i've got four hours to go how am i even gonna do this i i'm so glad you brought that up because i think that was probably the biggest thing that i learned from the Cape Epic and I also raced the Swiss Epic in 2020 with Annika and it it was the same thing it was like after and that's only a five-day stage race so then you know I felt like after that the Swiss Epic I was like whoa I totally changed my opinion on what like the human body is capable as well like after the first stage I was like oh my gosh I can't do that again and then you got again and you're like max effort of a, a an hour-long climb you know 
and you're like, holy, how did I? And then you do it the next day and the next day. And, and then going to the Cape Epic last year, it was, it was an eight-day stage race, right? And every day, like, I actually felt better and better throughout the event. And that's insane. Like, I finished, and I was like, holy, like, how did I do that, you know? And then it totally changes your mental approach to your training, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I have, you know, two, whatever, four-hour rides on the weekend. That's nothing. Now, you know, like if I get a rest day the next day, yeah. oh my gosh, it totally changes what you think is possible. And also like for me, it just made me, I think, just more in awe of the, of the human body, human potential, and also my mind. I think I learned so much from that race and it, it definitely changed my approach to, to training and what's possible. It's like it opens, it totally change, changes your limits for sure. All right. Well, Ian Boswell and I, we're heading across there as complete <laughs> novices. I'm hoping I've got a little bit more up on Ian because I've been in the summer. He's been in the winter. He can climb better than I can, but maybe we're going to be somewhat yeah. even physically. What little tricks can you give us? Can you give me, actually, yeah. don't tell Ian, for the Cape Epic coming up? You're very experienced there. What sort of advice, piece of advice yeah, for me? the team element is the most important part. It's everything because it's really about sharing your energy as one instead of two separate, you know, racers. And I think it, it really is like putting the ego aside completely and figuring out, okay, you know, like I, if whoever was, I guess, the less strong rider that day, I would let, we would let that person lead the climb. And that changed, you know, or sometimes, you know, when we knew when to push each other, okay, let's raise the bar. Like, can't, are we possible mm. or are we, you know, capable of doing more? But sometimes it's just letting them lead the pace and then figuring out where, how to balance everything out. And then also just like fueling, like little things like, hey, are you drinking? Are you eating? You know, at, at, and the race continues after the race. Like, yeah. did you sleep? Are you having that for breakfast? You know, it's like always being on your teammate. And we, I think me and Sophia just found a really, good at way of just yeah setting our ego aside and just like being one team and trying to do everything we could to win as and share our energy so like if I felt you know really good figuring out ways I would kind of slow down a little bit on single track or something with the other riders she would like start taking up <laughs> off the climb and then I would play a little like sprinting attacks with the riders behind cross-country racing is such an individual sport and we're although we have the team you know mm -hmm. outside of us our coaches our you know our staff and our support teams the but you know the, the bike brands it's so much you know at the end of the day it's us on the start line and us racing you know for an hour and a half and so when it comes to something like the cape epic it's, it's really cool to share that experience with another person and um mm -hmm. i like that part a lot Hey, Lockie. Now, mountain biking. This is something that you didn't grow up doing. I didn't grow up doing. And you actually sort of took me under your wing over in Girona um, and said, hey, come out. It's awesome. You're going to love it. And I was like, I don't know. I really don't know. It's just so different. Mate, you've been doing it for a couple of years now. You've actually been doing a few races. You've done Cape Epic. You've done a few XC races in Girona and about. You've done some stuff over in the US. You're starting to master the craft a little bit as a roadie converted to mountain biking. What am I sort of getting myself into, mate? What can I expect? Like from the road side of things, like what are the little things I need to sort of be ready for? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a totally different style of racing. Physically, it's not as controlled as road racing. It's a lot of short, violent efforts. You spend a lot of time, you know, like full of lactate, 
heart rate through the roof. So I think that's like a big surprise because you kind of, as a road racer, you always think you've got that like fitness to lean back on, but it is a different fitness that doesn't always translate directly. So you have to be willing to like really max it out, even if it's like five minutes into a four hour state and that element and like the whole bunch kind of, you know, environment doesn't exist in, in mountain biking. Yeah. Like get, getting ready for that physically. And then obviously technically it's entirely different um, because you're constantly dealing with different trail obstacles that you need to be able to navigate and maintain momentum in order to go quickly Um, so just having that that technical confidence and ability is something that as a road rider you have to just invest time and effort into to mastering what's really crosses across like what are one of the things that you've noticed you know what i'm actually a little bit ahead of these other guys because i'm a roadie you know like you know i'm glad that i've got that opposed to what you guys will never have got from doing you know 10 years as a road pro uh i think whenever there's a bunch dynamic you can save a lot of energy as a road rider like there's a lot of races you know a race like leadville in the u.s where there is a bit of bunch riding just knowing how to sit in a group and when to move and how to position you end up spending a lot less energy the guys that were like oh how hectic was that bunch you're like what what are you talking about exactly or they'll just spend a bunch of you know bikinis like riding in the wind and then you move up like right at the last minute and just like slot in coming from a road that helps beyond that it's like it's pretty hard to say i think your endurance will serve you well in that last two three hours once the absolute intensity of the battles died off a bit and people start to come apart um i think as a road rider you can lean on that ability to keep going long and strong um you you make up a lot of spots in that last few few hours and and your recovery day to day not that many mountain bike stage races so like the fact that you've done grand tours and that like one physically you've got that ability to back up and two you know what you need to do to recover day in day out which will, will help help for sure what about there psychologically? That's what I was going to say. Like psychologically, maybe you've, okay, obviously I haven't been there before, but I've been there fatigue wise. I'm not going to freak out because I've been here many a times. Day three, let's just grind our way out of it. Does that help you at all? Yeah, definitely. I think like any mental resilience uh, that you have going into something difficult, especially like Kate Bevick is going to serve you well. I don't know. I think people can draw on mental resilience from a bunch of different places so i don't know if having a road background would help but actually having a world tour background will help because there's so many so many periods of you know world tour racing where it seems like absolutely impossible but you're like well i have to just get on with it you know that that'll be the same for sure in this race one thing nino said to me was he was grateful for the the little bit of time he got a chance to race in Orica Green Edge because it allowed him to work out how to race as a teammate opposed to the rest of the time in his career he races as an individual he only has to race for himself and he only has to worry about himself come to Cape Epic and the Epic series of races you know the the Swiss Epic and you know the Croc Trophy even though he hasn't done it but you know one of the one of the legendary races he said, actually learned a lot racing in a team environment for that race. I was like, that's weird. You're only racing with one other guy. Why would that even matter? Do you think that does matter? Maybe you don't even realize that. Yeah, no, that helps. Um, I think, like, we spent so much time in a team environment, like, based around, and, like, 
as a writer like yourself and like myself most of the time you were working for someone so you kind of constantly adapting the way you write to someone else's style and i think that's um that's important in the the pair dynamic because you work out very quickly where the other person is stronger where the other person is weaker constantly shuffling to try and get the most out of yourself as a pair you know so that might mean you're like okay i'm going to take this this big fire road section take all the wind here but then this descent i'm going to make sure i'm behind because i'm going to follow their lines uh and then we're going to be quicker even then like identifying when someone is starting to struggle and how hard you can push uh how hard you can't push like trying to get a sprinter over a climb you know where you're like okay make it over with this group here you're like i'm gonna have to like back off here and then we're gonna have to change for 15 k it's gonna suck for me but like those little things will help you get the most out of like your, your pairing Well, Boz, like I said, we're on the eve of going to Cape Epic. Was that episode enough for you? Do you feel chocked up with information? I know we've been training out on on the bikes, on the trails, but now we've got the knowledge. We've done the homework. Listen to the podcast. You ready? You ready to rock and roll? What did you learn from that episode? I mean, I learned a lot. Um, I feel like one of the things that Nino mentioned was that he is mentally very like prepared for, before the races. And I feel like <laughs> listening to that made me realize like, oh man, I'm very unprepared. <laughs> like I was just thinking like, what day does this race start? Like what's the, you know, like I, I mean, I, I think we've both just been busy like to dive into like the details of the race, which, you know, we would have both done before, you know, Liege Best on Liege or, you know, Perry Roubaix, you would know every section, you would know, you know, all this recon and we're kind of just flying blind which sometimes is actually like a blessing but you know to realize that you know the mental side of this is so important compared to you know just going out for a ride mountain bike ride which we've both been doing but just knowing you know i feel like we're also both still learning equipment you know there's definitely gonna be a day i'm gonna break out my short finger gloves <laughs> i'm not even gonna take short finger gloves i'm not even gonna venture there i'm staying long finger i want to go fly under the radar i don't need anyone else working against me let alone the mountain bike scene so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I learned a lot of that episode, but I actually love just talking to these legends and how much time they gave me. And that's one thing that I'm understanding about the mountain bike scene is very, very inclusive. And legends, like I said, Ned, you know, the GOAT, Nino, these guys talking to us, as well as Haley, just taking time out of their day to explain to me the simplicity simple questions that i had to ask about mountain bike they're probably thinking oh my gosh these guys they are doomed for um yeah. but i'm really ex i'm really excited to actually finally catch up with you boz it's been a few years since we've seen each other in person follow you around the tracks in south africa a massive thanks goes out to rafa who are putting this podcast on for us this year a massive support towards life in the peloton but of course wahoo as well who are a big supporter of the podcast Will Jones behind the scenes who's piecing these episodes together. I'm giving him way, way too much audio and he is making these episodes come to life. Meg behind the scenes and my partner over there in Cape Epic, Ian. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for coming on board. Life in the Peloton this year. Thanks, Mitch. I do have one question in closing for you. You asked multiple times, are you scared of the start? You asked everyone, what is the start like at these races? And I feel like you're, you're, I think we're both scared of the start of people sprinting off the start line at seven in the morning with no warm up. I'm, I'm so scared of that. Like that's something that I was so scared of my first marathon mountain bike race. I uh, thought it was going to be like an XC race. I was ready. I was nervous. I could feel my hands sort of tinkering on the bars and everyone rolled off super slow. 
So now I'm confused. Is it going to be like the marathon one or is it going to be like an XC? I don't know. That's why I keep asking the question. What am I in for? Well, we're about to find out. I say we play the long game. We've got the, we've got the endurance. Let's play the long game. We'll catch Well, we may not be catching anyone on the downhill, but hopefully we can catch them over the course of, you know, a five or six hour day. Well, Ian and I are going to be documenting our first Cape Epic. That'll be the episode in two weeks time. Guys, until then, have a laugh at us on the social network and I'll speak to you then. Cheers, Boz. See you soon. Cheers, Mitch. Thank you. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.